0: Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar.
1: Greetings. Welcome to episode 27 of the Silmarillion Seminar. This week we cover chapter 22 of The Ruin of Doria. My name is Chris Stevens on behalf of the Tolkien Professor and my fellow Silmarillionaires. Surprisingly, we covered a lot of topics in this episode and still managed to finish the chapter in one week. Well, we've survived three weeks spent on the adventures of Turin Turinbar. If you're still with us, without resorting to antidepressant medications, congratulations. I've actually been quite worried about Laura, the intrepid editor of the seminar, since she probably has to listen to them more than anyone. Hang on, Laura, we're almost done. In the current episode, we move away from Turin himself, and we look first at the fate of Hurin and Morwen. The power of the scene of their final meeting and the subsequent death of Morwen generated a fair amount of comment. In addition, we discuss the curious fact that the grave of Turin, Nienna, and Morwen was the only piece of land to survive the sinking of Beleriand. One surprise to me was a great comparison made between Turin Turambar and none other than Master Samwise Ganji. This discussion gave us a glimpse of Tolkien's attitude on suicide. We then follow Huron as he indirectly sets the stage for the destruction of the two remaining Elven Kingdoms, his plea for help to Turgon and Gondolin, and his bringing the Nauglamir to Thingol and Doria. Some of the other things we covered... The significance of grave sites in Tolkien's works, we contrasted the corrupting influences of the One Ring versus the Silmarils, and we even had a discussion of Dr. Kevorkian and the supposed euthanasia of Frodo. You'll have to listen to understand. We also discussed Thingol's pride leading to his downfall, the pride that led to his incomprehensible act of berating and antagonizing the dwarves when he was alone and unarmed with them. Then we had a very interesting discussion on Melian's reaction to Fingal's death. I've got a whole new perspective on her motivations, as well as the nature of Thingol and Melian's relationship. And finally, sadly, we covered how pointless and cruel was the attack of the sons of Fianor on Doriath, Also, how low the sum of the elves had fallen as they left the children of Dior to starve in wilderness. And now, without further delay, let's join the session.
0: Good evening, everybody, and welcome back to the Silmarillion Seminar. Today we celebrate our first week in a while not talking about Turin Turambar. Oh, well, okay, we're going to talk about the rest of his family for a while here at the beginning, I don't doubt. uh, But we are moving onwards. and, of course, the first thing I want to start talking about tonight is exactly that link and connection. That is, we're sort of officially done with the story which, remember, was called, um, not just in the recently published book, but uh, even explicitly at the beginning of the chapter, called The, the Lay of the Children of Hurin. And, uh, but, of course, we ended that story. That story ends, although it's so long, it, it ends rather suddenly with just their tombstones. In their inscriptions, and then the one brief passing reference to the fact that Neonor's body was not found. Um, now, of course, at the beginning of the next chapter, right away, we return to Hurin, and, uh, and his sort of, the final tying up of loose ends. Um, and I think it's, uh, I mean, one thing which is kind of interesting is where... That previous chapter chose to end. I mean, one can see certainly how Hurin's bringing of the Noglimir to Doriath is clearly part of that follow-up story. Is clearly, you know, a big part of the story of the fall of of, of Doriath. But um, but sort of the, the the question of where to end um, the Turin Turambar chapter is, I think, uh, is I think kind of an interesting one. What did you guys make of that? I mean, as you read the start of this chapter. Um, were any of you sort of? Uh, I mean, did you have any thoughts about this? About sort of why the why the chapter break was introduced? Where it was? Anyone? Uh, anyone kind of thinking in those directions? I know that many of you had lots of things you wanted to talk about uh, about Hurin generally. Brandon, go ahead.
2: Uh, I just I, I kind of had a, a little bit of a thought because it, it seems that Morgoth's plan all along wasn't so much the destruction of Turin, nor Hurin. But more of like Melian and Thingle. And if you read the beginning of the chapter, it says that Morgoth let, um, Heron go out of pity, but Heron was too smart to believe that. Um, and really Morgoth feared and hated, um, Thingle and Melian's, um, basic goodness and, um, wanted to destroy him. So I think that's why you get kind of a the separation there. Um, I don't know that's just a thought
0: Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, certainly the focus has shifted, even if, uh, you know, the story that we're telling or that we're hearing at the very beginning seems to be, in a sense, sort of just a logical extension of the previous story. And one could certainly argue that the story of, of, you know, the children of Hurin or sort of the story of the, you know, sort of wreck of the Hurin family doesn't really end until at least Morwen's death, right? I mean, that scene with Hurin and Morwen there at the tombstone, it sort of seems like that should be included, right? It's part of the same story story, but, but I do agree with you, uh, Brandon, that one thing that we can see when we cross over into this chapter is at least some degree of shift towards sort of back to the Elvish point of view. We talked last time uh, some about how this story, uh, the story of Turin Turimbar, was kind of fundamentally a human story, possibly the quintessentially human story in the Silmarillion, and um so now you know, of course, you know we had we had Elvish characters in it. You know we had Belleg, of course, and 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 Moblong and and Gwyndor, but but and Thingol and Melian. But nevertheless, they were sort of in relationship to the human characters. It was you know they were they were still kind of even the important ones. Finding, uh, 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 you know, they were they were they were side characters. However, here we really do get, you know, and now back to Morgoth and the Elves, um, and the 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 way in which Hurin and his the ending part of his story works towards that and is instrumental in accomplishing that. So um, so I, I think that that's a good way to think about it, um, Brandon, that that's certainly, uh, um, that certainly is a shift that we can see. We do come back to, um, whereas the focus was entirely in the previous chapter in the Turin Turinbar chapter on Morgoth and his malice... Towards Turin, uh, towards Hurin's family in general. Now we have back to sort of the big picture. In some sense, that's like well, I was going to say it's recreational for Morgoth. That's not exactly true. He took personally Hurin's defiance of him, um, so it was it was personal in that way. But it's not really strategic. I mean, he's like Dor Loman, It's it's done. Like he's you know the the House of Hador is pretty much finished and um you know the fact that turin this one really powerful guy is left wandering around not a major threat so strategically not a big deal um and now we sort of return to the bigger strategic factors that is now uh you know we've got we we had the wreck of the rest of Beleriand after the near ninth and we were left with the three elvish strongholds yeah, so now we've ticked one off you know we were you were down to two you know we 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 got rid of Nargothrond last time. Now Doriath and Gondolin are the only ones left, and Hurin becomes at least a little bit instrumental um, in uh, in in both of those things. Um, what did you guys make of, of Hurin's sort of non-encounter with Turgon? I know that uh, in our notes there were several of you who... Uh, was, who were interested in that in that encounter, that near encounter? What we see from Turgon's perspective, and what we see from um, from Hurin's perspective. Of course, we have to remember, though it's been a long time ago, uh, both in pages and even more in weeks, uh, that. Um, Húrin and Túrgon have a personal history, two stages of personal history. Recall, right? That remember, Húrin and Huar were taken, uh, were you know were, were were lost in the woods as children, um, sort of an anticipation of of Dior's sons who are lost in the woods. But they're rescued by the eagles and taken to Gondolin. So remember, Húrin and Huar spend their time in Gondolin and are released by Túrgon. So that when Húrin meets Túrgon on the battlefield in the Near Neith, um they recognize each other and they know each other. And then, of course, at that point, then Hurin and his people uh, are the rearguard to allow the Gondolinrim to escape. So that's the context, of course, of his crying out to Turgon. But what do you make of that? Thoughts on thoughts on on his uh, his his encounter, non encounter with Turgon. Chris, go ahead.
1: I guess the thing that struck me, and it was really from Turgon's reaction, I thought it was a little. <laughs> I, I would have expected him to be more compassionate, even if, even with the risk of uh, Hurin being maybe brainwashed by Morgoth or whatever. You would, I would have. I was surprised that he said, "What it, was it? My heart is shut, or whatever, yeah. whatever it was that he said." Um, and then, oh, then immediately he changes his mind. That just, that whole sequence just seems well strange. I don't know what else to, to make of it. I, in my note on, the, on the thing, I said something about is that some sort of destiny. Um, intervening in his decision, um, be, um because things had to carry on as they did i mean maybe that was just destined, but i i thought his whole reaction and then change of mind was very strange
0: yeah i agree i mean and i think and you you're right to to point out that line it's to me i think one of the one of the weightiest lines that we get in that whole section when turgon says my heart is shut and we'll see in the next chapter that that's going to that's going to play a pretty big part um, the policy of turgon towards the outside world is um I mean I think it's gonna be very important for us to look at when we look at the fall of Gondolin. Um, you know, and we, we've already seen a couple things already, that is we saw um his uh his discussion with Aradel, his sister, um and his but but nevertheless his choice to let her go. We've seen his welcoming of Maeglin and his uh basically well not quite imprisonment, but anyway, his restriction of Aol. Um And then his letting Hurin and Huor go, and then his opening the League of Gondolin and marching out, and then, and then returning. So now to see, my heart is shut. Is sort of the opposite of the... Because uh, the, the, the arrival of the Gondolindrum on the battlefield at the Ninth Arnoidiad is almost catastrophic. It doesn't end up bringing about... It's not like the eagles are coming. Um, you know. It doesn't bring about the sudden victory in the battle. Um, but it is an unexpected turn, and an unexpected good turn. And remember, that's what sort of brings joy and hope uh, to Fingin's heart, kind of sort of tragically, of Actually, course. Actually, it could it have been out. if, if,
1: if the, the men in the east hadn't have... Uh... Intervened, yeah, the, the coming of the Gondolin galondr- gal- the Gondolin people. Yes, yes, <laughs> would, would have uh, would have uh, been you, catastrophic, as you say.
0: Yeah, exactly. Especially since remember, Turgon was able to restrain them from the rash onslaught that Gwyndor led, um, and you know much of the host of Fingen was overextended and then destroyed, but the Gondolindrim weren't. Um, so yeah, they were a big, they were a big force in the battle and they, you know, they, they, and a bit, one of the reasons why they might have won. Um, so anyway, this is, this is all in a sense to kind of foreshadow our discussion next week of Turgon, but, um, but I, but but I do think that 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 moment, um, my heart is shut. is really is really good though. To me, even more curious, you know, Chris, sort of thinking about it as a, as a, a counterintuitive kind of exchange. The conversation between Turgon and Thorondor is his first Turgon's first impulse. Does Morgoth sleep? You are mistaken. And of course, <laughs> Thorondor is a little bit miffed at at being accused of, of of being mistaken. You know that 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 he saw the thing wrong. Um, it's like, no, uh, you know, basically Turgon seems to, uh, to actually disbelieve the fact that Hurin is loose. Um, and I think that we might in part take this as a testimony of faith in Hurin's character on his part, that he knows that Morgoth's not going to just let him go out of pity, and he obviously doesn't believe what other people believe, um, or at least is very reluctant to believe it. That is, when they see Hurin, uh, coming out of Angband, um then they, uh, they, you know, because he, because of his coming out of Angband as one in league and honor with Morgoth, and they think he's, you know, gone over to the dark side, and Turgon is obviously so unwilling to conceive of the idea that Hurin has gone over to the dark side, that he, um, that he, he is willing to believe, rather, that Thorondor's eyes were, were misleading him, um, And then we see Turgon very grudgingly uh, coming to the conclusion, because it's the only other explanation he can think of, that even Hurin Thalion has surrendered to the will of Morgoth. And that's what leads him to say, my heart is shut, which I think is really interesting. Um, But, uh, Brandon, go ahead.
2: Uh, Yeah, I just found it interesting that you you mentioned the catastrophic moment of uh, Turgon and Hurin kind of coming together. And... um, Eagles, sort of having that uh, you catastrophic, yeah, um, uh, just being there for you to you catastrophic moments, and uh, in the beginning of the chapter, Hearn looks towards the sky for these eagles that he remembers as a a child, as they marked, um, you know, these perhaps these these you catastrophic moments, perhaps hope, and they're not there. Um, All he sees is a fading light and. And grayness. So I thought that was interesting. Secondly, um, Turgen, It seems to me that he he's one of these beneficent um, tyrants, where he has. Remember, it's almost. It's, it seems like it's one percent. If, if that one percent of the population of Gondolin gets to leave mm-hmm. Gondolin, if once you're there, it's so beautiful, it's so spectacular, you don't get to leave. And you know, he kind of rules on that natural. Um, hierarchy of um, political hierarchy, but um, that's all I have.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I and I, I think that that's yeah uh, that 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 moment that you say of with the eagles. I mean, it's it's this really sad moment, right, when Horan is looking up and it's like the eagles aren't coming. The eagles aren't coming. There's no right. you, you <laughs> catastrophe for Horan because that would be, in a sense, the only thing that could maybe. I mean, it's not like. It's not like one can really easily imagine who in story having a happy ending at this point, uh, you know, knowing what he knows and seeing what he's seen. But, you know, if he were to be swept up by an eagle and taken back to Gondolin, that, you know, seems like one of the only things which might be a, some kind of release can could bring some kind of, you know, to sort of return to that refuge of his youth um, and, uh, you know, to return to the one safe place now in... In 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 Middle Earth in okay. Beleriand, um, but he doesn't get it. And this this yeah. uh, this this passage. And Mike, I think that you were. Mentioning this passage uh, in our notes as well, um, and, and I, it's just—it's a wonderful description. It's such a powerful sentence. We've talked before about sort of the power of, mm-hmm. of Tolkien's short sentences, and this is one of those one of those long ones. Then Hurin looked up to the grey sky, thinking that he might once more descry mm-hmm. the eagles as he had done long ago in his youth. But he saw only the shadows blown from the east and clouds swirling about the inaccessible peaks, and he heard only the wind hissing over the stones. Um, so good, you know that that you've got mm-hmm. in place of the eagles, you have the shadows flying significantly, of course, from the east and the wind hissing over the stones. That is, you know, this sort of, this sort of, this sense of deadness. You know, you don't have the, the green veil of Tum'laden, this this g- green and fertile plain is what he's thinking about. You've got, remember, Glaurung laying waste to the, uh, you know, to, to everything he comes into. You've just got the bare stones and the wind hissing over it. Um, makes me think of Gollum's riddle, the wind riddle. Um, uh, you know, toothless bites and mouthless mutters. Um, anyway, I think it's... Uh, uh, you know and again this is all in place of the u catastrophe, you know you just get this barrenness, this emptiness um where you know where uh, where where the eagle's taking you away to something <clears throat> something which looks at least a little bit like paradise uh might be instead turgon and i think you know interesting and as Brandon, I think you mentioned also um or maybe it was chris uh turgan's rethinking of this moment um you know that that he two lines after he said my heart is shut he opens his heart again um so this is sort of only a temporary closing uh of his heart by by turkin and he sends the eagles to seek for him um and bring them if they might to gondolin and again so he he briefly entertained the idea it seems that hurin has fallen it seems that you know he has surrendered to the will of morgoth but then immediately he's like, nah, no, no, let's let's rescue him instead. Um but but it's too late. And they never saw him again in light or in shadow. In light or in shadow. Um suggesting that both of those things are still in Hurin's future. Uh which perhaps we will see um and then you've got his hopeless crying out oh turgan will you not hear in your hidden halls will you not hear as if his lack of hearing is uh is is a conscious choice by turgan you know that he could hear him if he wanted to um but is deliberately turning a deaf ear to him um it's hard to be hurin it really is um But now let's talk about what I know many of you have been uh, wanting to talk about, so I'll I'll be ready for you guys to jump in, and that is Hurin's uh, final meeting with Morwen. When he meets Morwen uh, at the tombstone of their children, the stone whose inscription ends, essentially, uh, the story of Turin Turambar. And I love the fact that Hurin did not look at the stone, for he knew what was written there. Um, Yeah, Nick, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to comment
3: on how Huron says after Moran dies, she was not conquered. Um, it seems that Huron is implying that the suicides of his children uh, were due to despair, and the courage of his wife to bear it all due to the end was to hope, and therefore more honorable. And I think this is fairly consistent in Tolkien's work, that taking one's life out of despair, such as with Turin and Myanmar, you know, Denifer, for example is dishonorable, and that sacrificing oneself for the opposite is good, such as her uh, in Fifth Battle. I think that Gandal, Think looking back to Return of the King, he says to Benefor, um authority is not given to you, Stuart of Gondor, to order the hour of your death, and only the heathen kings under the domination of the dark power did thus slaying themselves in pride and despair, murdering their kin to ease their own death. Um, so, I would say that, that hope is having faith in the bigger picture of no, of losing time, losing, and accepting your place in it, and that despair is losing that, instead of kind of getting caught up in the of situation and failing to see through it. I guess the moral of the story is that there's only so about is how bad things may seem. And, and I think that Mowen no is in a sense, she's sort of rewarded at the end for this, when herring comes and they're uh, reunited. I mean, she's sitting there at, at the gravesite, and probably the last thing that she's expecting to see is her husband, that she hasn't seen in almost 30 years, just to magically pop by and say, hey, I was let go by more growth here and i am. how you been? But that's exactly what happens, and it happens right before she dies, which is kind of ironic and really good timing. And I think I agree with you that this is the set. One of the saddest chapters in the book. But this that that moment is just a little bit of light in the saddest chapter. I guess it
0: doesn't yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think that was those are some great points, uh, Nick. And I, you know, the one thing I would say is what what the thing that I always find most striking about the initial conversation between Morwin and Hurin is the fact that she doesn't seem surprised. You know, her first, you know, she does her husband has been captured by Morgoth and, and held as his prisoner in Angband uh, for years and year decades now, and her, when she looks up and she sees him wandering into the clearing, she doesn't say, you know. Wow! <laughs> what are you doing here? How did you escape, or anything? She says, "You come at last. I have waited too long." It was a dark road. I have come as I could. He answered, "But you are too late. They are lost. I know it, but you are not." Uh, so it's just—it's incredible. Um, but yeah, I—I I agree that the the stubbornness of Morwin. You know, I think that you can pair these two, Hurin and Morwin. Together, and I think it makes a really interesting comparison to look at. On the one hand, Hurin in the Fens of Cirith, surrounded by the armies of Morgoth, shouting, "Day shall come again," as he you know wields his axe two-handed, and Morwen, sitting there by the grave of Turin and Nienor, um, con- you know that is confronted by you know literally propping herself up against the evidence of their destruction. She knows that they're dead she doesn't know like he does exactly what happens but she knows that they're gone and she and yet her not despairing you know her also kind of holding out in this in this desperate stubborn strength um you know and even you know the the phrase that she uses when in response when he says but you are not that is you are not lost she says almost i am spent um you know, it's been really tiring, you know, it's, but it's what she's been doing has been really hard. Um, and you know, she has dropped out of the story. Remember she, she has been gone ever since Glaurung scattered the, the, that, you know, the, the group of warriors that came out of Doriath to explore towards Nargothrond. Um, you know, when Nienor lost her memory, we haven't even had a passing reference to her. We don't know what's been happening to her. Um, but, you know, now we find her and it's again it's it's as if she has been um she has simply been enduring. Laura, go ahead.
4: Yeah, I, I thought that uh Huron's uh meeting Morwen, Morwin that may have been um designed by Morgoth, but the outcome wasn't really what he uh what he would intend it to be because Huron sees that uh Morwin is able to escape from, from the nets of Morgoth, that uh, with her death, she's free of, of his, uh, his evil fate towards them, and, you know, yeah. the, the webs of fate that he's woven around them. And so, you know, I think this is one thing that, that Morgoth sort of orchestrated that didn't quite come out the way he did, but the way he intended. Um, I mean, you don't see a lot of real good coming out of it, exactly, but it is a moment where uh, you can see that, you know, Morgoth... Uh, Morgoth's hold on these people is a passing thing.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, and Morwin certainly, whatever we might think, um, and
0: however we might judge <clears throat> the deaths of Turin and Neonor, as we were discussing last week, surely Morwen, um of the four of them, Morwin is the one who sort of dies most honorably, who, you know, if death is an escape, which it certainly seems to be, and I think that Morgoth's language... Um, especially in the children of Huron version um, really emphasizes that, that he believes that, you know, he claims to have, you know, control. T- he claims to be the master of fate um, of all things, but he's not. And they do. And, and, and mortals do escape him and all, any possible control he might have. Morwen is clearly the one who of all of them ex- escapes most cleanly. And I think that we can see Huren recognizing that when he says she was not conquered. Um, and uh, and you know Nick, there are actually there's still a couple other things that you mentioned that I that I I, I want to make sure not to pass over. Uh, and of course, you're right to peril to to bring Denethor in. Of course, Denethor is is doubly relevant, um, both because of course he is one of the one of the no not one of he's the most prominent suicide um, in the Lord of the Rings, and so obviously relevant to this to the to the question. Um, not only of, 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 of Neonor and of Turin, but also of course of Hurin himself. Um, but also of course, you know, he, he also, that is he, Denethor is also the, the picture of, of despair, the clearest exemplar of despair and what it does to you. And the parallels between Hurin and Denethor are very clear. Um, that is the way in which their vision is warped the way in which they are led to see all things crooked the way in which their own wills in even become twisted even though neither one of them submits even though neither one of them gives in denethor is still fighting he hasn't you know he's not he's not wormtongue you know he's not he's not betraying his city um he is he got where he is um, that is denethor gets to the state um that he ends up in by fighting by by resisting sauron uh by daring to look in 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 the stone in the palantir and uh and trying to you know wrestling in thought with uh with the dark lord up in his tower um as 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 the men in the city say um and yet he sees things crooked and he doesn't understand things properly. He despairs. Um and that and there is pride in that. He is sure that he knows what's going on. And of course you remember in the Lord of the Rings, the thing that he throws at Gandalf when he is um you know, when he says to uh to Gandalf your hope thy hope is but ignorance, um what he is pointing to is is the fleet that's sailing up Anduin, and even now the you know the the wind of thy hope, wafts from the sea a fleet with black sails. Um, you know he takes the arrival of Aragorn's fleet, which looked like the bad guys, because those the bad guy ships, as evidence of the final end of the as evidence of hopelessness. But of course he uh, is the one who is ultimately ignorant. Um, so again, dis- that's the pattern with despair. That's the kind of thing we see with despair and. Um, you know, we sort of, you know, thinking back to some of the things we were saying with with Turin last week, um, I think that we can see Turin as being a kind of a, a, a victim of that similar kind of pride. Um, not exactly the same, of course, but, uh, but of him, you know, the, what he's been struggling with all along is believing that he can be the master of his fate. Um, but uh, uh, anyway, yeah, Brandon, go ahead.
2: I was just thinking about um how it is interesting um in the passage where uh huron just he he knows that morwin um that she dies without even uh, he just as you know it says moran sighed and clasped his hand and was still and Huron knew that she had died mm-hmm. um just kind of like that unspoken sort of awareness that you know some uh, you have uh, a person has left this realm. Um, I thought that was just really it's just a very powerful powerful scene in, in Tolkien. I think one of the most powerful.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and uh and and his silence, the fact that the last thing she ever says is a question which he doesn't answer. Um and then she dies never knowing the answer. Uh Mike, you had some comments on this uh in the notes. Do you want to talk about that a little bit?
5: Well my my question and maybe other readers had this question. Is her last question, her, Morwin's last question, if you know now, tell me, how did she find him? And is, is Morwin asking Horin to tell her how Neonor, uh, found Turin?
0: Yeah, I think so. That's okay. how I take that.
5: Well, that's how I took it too. So, and, so the fact that Turin, I'm sorry, the fact that Horin doesn't respond with the, you know the terrible details of how Nionor found Horin i read that as an act of mercy and compassion and love and connecting it back to uh Laura's point about Morgoth's manipulations gone awry if Horin did act out of mercy and compassion and love in not disclosing that to his wife in the final minutes that they're together then he spared her the agony of those of knowing that and that is a victory it's a small victory mm-hmm. so mm-hmm.
0: yeah i mean i certainly agree that it's an act of compassion and it's uh, it is it is just sort of a sort of a fascinating thing you know the, the sort of the the the, the sil- like he is saying something to her in a sense right it's, you know you really you don't want to know um she knows she knows what she believes to be the worst, right? She knows they're both dead because she's been leaning up against their tombstone and their names are both of them carved right there. Um, and so she think she feels like she knows the worst um but he's <laughs> no no you don't know the worst um uh one last uh before we leave the uh the the suicide question behind and and uh, you know nick again coming back to one of the things that you were saying earlier um uh, Denethor is not the only uh suicide moment um In the Lord of the Rings, one that I think is really interesting, and I think the moment we were saying, um, we were saying it a couple times last time, Dave, you were, you were saying quite forcefully that it's, that it's sort of inconceivable, um, that Tolkien is going to be advocating suicide, or that Tolkien would not object to the idea that, like, suicide is a good idea, um, I th- the moment in The Lord of the Rings that I think gives us, provides us the sort of the clearest condemnation of suicide um, is not even Denethor, though that's bad, um, but Sam, actually, at the end of The Two Towers, when he believes Frodo's dead, he contemplates suicide briefly. Um, and uh, and we get a pretty clear um, condemnation of it there. This is in the choices of Master Samwise, um, right as Sam is deciding that he's got to take the ring and go on to the crack of doom. Um he looked on the bright point of the sword now remember uh, or perhaps you don't remember but in his fight with shelob sam was compared to turin like this is it's one of the one of the one of the two explicit turin references in all of the lord of the rings um is that not even turin could have stabbed up underneath shelob uh and killed her the way that he stabs up underneath glaurung um uh, so, uh, so Sam has just been explicitly connected with Turin himself, and then he's looking at the bright point of the sword. Uh, now remember, when the Lord of the Rings came out, nobody had knew the story of Turin, so that wouldn't mean anything to them, but knowing it, it does mean something to us. He looked on the bright point of the sword. He thought of the places behind, where there was a black brink and an empty fall into nothingness. So, in two sentences, Sam has contemplated the Turin mode of suicide, and then the Neonor mode of suicide. There was no escape that way. That was to do nothing, not even to grieve. That was not what he had set out to do. What am I to do then? He cried again. And now he seemed plainly to know the hard answer. See it through. Another lonely journey, and the worst. That was to do nothing, not even to grieve. Um. So I said that uh, in my mind. That that paragraph is one of the most sort of succinct and uh, and strong. Uh, anti suicide moments in uh um, in in the Lord of the rings um, but uh, uh, anyway uh John I know you had some things that you would wanted to say about Hurin and Morwin as well um, and especially this uh the the stone that they 're propped up against here um, do you have uh can you uh, get to the microphone to talk about that John
6: um all right so first returning to hurin um, Huren, um what I found very interesting about um, the sort of not, not sword, the stone of the hapless, um, the idea that it's basically the last remaining remnant of Valerion after the War of Wrath, I, I find quite interesting. I mean, I, I think you mentioned this on you know previous podcasts mm-hmm. how you know of all you know the objects or relics of Valerion to survive after the War of Wrath, it is very strange that or you know and yet also quite fitting. That this monument to the children of Hurin yet remains. I, I think you know it, it's very interesting how this chapter doesn't dive into the ruin of Doria, though that is its title. It dives directly into basically this final little bit about basically um, Hurin and basically we get what we you know know about the stone of the hapless, which I, I think is really you know a monument to them all, and to you know to the entire Hurin family and. One element, which, which I found also sort of neat, is I remember earlier how the chapter about um, Beren and Luthien ends, and then we get, you know, of the fifth battle, of the Nyrnaith, Arnoidead. If you stopped and did not read um, the chapter heading and just continued reading, it would seem like there was no break. I think if you go back to the end of um, the tale of Turin Turambar and basically the beginning of the Ruin of Doriath, just for a little style time, I I think it's also it's it's pretty seamless there too. I don't know if this was deliberate, um, you know, because of earlier rough drafts, of course. But it's just one thing I really had in mind. One last thing before we move on is I I was wondering, and and this is just completely, you know, hypothetical. um, Does anyone really know where the stone of the hapless is geographically in Middle Earth? I we remember, you know, news about the uh, the Dagor Dagorath in the last battle. I I just feel somehow it has to be tied. It has to be tied in with the very end, Um, as this is almost a relic from the very beginning. But I I don't really know. Capping off all that we know about Hurin here, whether this was all intended by Tolkien or how much he really wanted left after you know um, he was working on the later drafts of the Silmarillion. I I don't think there is any references to this in the Book of Lost Tales. And going through the later writings. I, I can't tell you about Morgoth's ring or anything like that. So I, I just wanted your opinion on these matters, and I'm sorry if I uh, <laughs> kind of it got, off the original um, stage.
0: Yeah, no, story, no, no, no. That's. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I agree. I certainly agree that uh, you know the reference to the stone of the hapless uh, and Tol Morwin is uh, is are both of them very very fascinating. I mean that cha- that paragraph is one of I think the most interesting um, in the entire. Uh, in the entire chapter, um, oh, actually, let's 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 actually read it because there are a whole bunch of uh, individual points, and uh, and I want you guys to jump in after this because I I, I want to do some close reading of this paragraph here. Tell me what you think are sort of interesting elements or moments uh, or phrases or sentences in this in this paragraph. This is the top of page two thirty. It is told that a seer and harp-player of Brethil, named glir made a song, saying that the stone of the hapless should not be defiled by Morgoth, nor ever thrown down, not though the sea should drown all the land, as after indeed befell, and still Tol-Morwen stands alone in the water beyond the new coasts that were made in the days of the wrath of the Valar. But Hurin does not lie there, for his doom drove him on, and the shadow still followed him. Now... What's interesting about it, there are a lot of things that are interesting about that. Of course, uh, um, in, in in some sense, I'm kind of going backwards from uh, from some of the larger points that John was making. I think um, you know, there's definitely a lot there. But what's uh, but, but I want to sort of go back first and look at some of these details, and then go out to some of those bigger issues. Brandon.
2: Okay, so the first thing that's really I think pretty interesting is that um, some guy composed a song. Yeah. And out of that song the power that this would never be touched by Morgoth, and from that it remains. So that must have been a pretty powerful song.
0: Yeah, and 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 notice the fact that we get his name Glirhuan. It's completely irrelevant. I mean, we totally talk about stuff that we don't need to know. Um, right, and this is one of the things that tends to drive people crazy about the Silmarillion when they get overwhelmed by the names and they're like, like you know, like I, I am I supposed to remember that? Is that going to be important later? No, you'll never hear about Glirhuan ever again. Um, but it's clearly a signal you don't have to memorize the name but it does plainly mark the fact that this is a really significant thing that this song that this prophecy that he made he was not only a harp player but also a seer um was so significant that his name is remembered uh by those who are who are telling this tale right now um um, so, but yes, I agree. Just you know, I, but I I don't want to get away from the fact, Brandon, as you're pointing out, that 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 this is a song sung as well, and we've seen the power of song uh, before, Laura.
4: Yeah, I'd say if by this point they're not beaten down by all the names, they're beaten down by the overwhelming depression of this chapter.
7: <laughs> yeah, probably.
4: <laughs> but um, you know, Tolkien definitely has an emphasis on graves. You know, he. Um, uh, it, the one that pops to my mind is the grave of Arwen, which was um, it does not would not be uh, changed, cha- or would not be forgotten until the world was changed mm-hmm. or, or words to that effect mm-hmm. and um, I, I guess I have to confess that I don't totally understand um, why just a grave would be so important you know I mean if you think um, in the Christian religion, it's really not that important. I guess that's more of something that came out of the North, the Norse uh, mythologies. But yeah, um, we certainly get a lot of that it,
0: kind of n- that that's, that that more northern kind of burial mound um, uh, sort of ethos in a lot of Tolkien's works. You're right.
4: Yeah, I mean our burial mounds, uh, you know, and we see some of that too with the Barrow White. Exactly. Um, you know. Burial mounds, are they supposed to still be inhabited by the spirits of these people? Or is it just a physical marker of of these people who once lived? Well, see, that's a really good question. And let's look back. um, And, of
0: course, by the time we get up to the barrows uh, and the barrow whites, we're looking at actually not one but two different things um, that is sort of separated twice from... um, from where we are right now in the Silmarillion that is first of all those barrows are the burying places of the descendants of the Numenorean of uh, of of once the kingdom of Arnor has has split and is divided um and the Witch-king is up there fighting them and everything it's 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 their barrows and then the barrow whites are sort of alien to them we're told that uh, he summons evil spirits who come and um and live in the mounds um and animate things
4: yeah but uh, it was either Mary or Pippin has the dream about yes. the Prince of Cardolan. So yes. uh, you know the, maybe the spirit is still there.
0: Yeah, I mean, there certainly does seem to be some kind of connection there. I mean, that that dream, um, yeah, Mary's dream is uh, is is very suggestive in that way. But you know, that the point I was making was that the Barrow White himself um, is not is not, I think. The spirit of the Prince of Cardolan that he, um, yeah, whose yeah. burial he's in, um, but as I say, all of that is pretty far removed from this. The, in order to, in order to contextualize this, we need to contextualize it as much as possible with its immediate context, um, and we have seen this is, uh, let's see, unless I'm forgetting, this is our third important gravesite. Um, sort of significant gravesite that a lot of attention has been placed on. Um, that is not only where we get... Well, I guess fourth if you count the Hill of Slain after the nearnith Arnoidiad, um, which I suppose we should, actually. It's not an individual grave. Uh, it's a mass grave. But, um, right, Brandon is right. Fingolfin's is one. Remember, his body is taken up uh, by the Lord of the Eagles and brought back to Turgon and Gondolin, and Gondolin takes it up and buries him on a mountaintop and um and you know and 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 green grows over the grave and and that's all great who else is so we've got I I I will count the hill of slain uh, at the end of at the end of the near ninth we've got fingolfin chris you got it finrod Finrod's, and that one is possibly uh even more significant than Fingolfin's, That is, uh, it's the emphasis that's placed on it. I think is even sharper, because of course he is buried on the top of the hill where where he first built his his city, his tower Minas Tirith, um, which is then taken over by Sauron uh, and made evil, and then cleansed by luthien though the burial of finrod there is the final cleansing moment and you've got the evil of that island is purged and it becomes green again and the the grave place of finrod none of the orcs dare to come near and becomes essentially his grave becomes essentially like the second minas Tirith, like the second tower of guard his grave guards over the 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 passes of syrian there um so that's great um now we now we get Morrowind. we'll get at least one more very significant uh grave place um uh in the next chapter uh that is that is glorfindel's but uh but here we get Tal Morrowind. and so so those you know Laura I'm kind of uh gradually kind of coming around to 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 your question and observation there um when we're understanding what is the significance why is this important i think it's those Um, those others that we need to compare it to, um, Finrods and Vingolphins especially, and also the Hill of Slain. One thing that we see is that there seems to be some kind of purification attached with it. All of those grave sites are shunned by evil creatures. And you think even of the way in which Turin self-consciously sets out to make the grave place of Finduilas, um, you know, the maiden the Lady Barrow, uh, as they kind of charmingly call it, um, a place of dread for the orcs. It seems that they don't naturally, um, shy away from it, um, but Turin's gonna make them shy away from it. Um, but anyway, in general, there seem to be, in these important burial places, a kind of, a kind of purification, even a kind of healing, not healing of the dead person, but healing, um, healing of the, of, of the land, and it seems to be an active force against evil. Um, and, but, but we're told something different about Tol Morrowind, that it's, it's not just that the orcs will always shun it. We're told even more than that, the Stone of the Hapless should not be defiled by Morgoth, nor ever thrown down. That Morgoth himself will be powerless against this. Um, but more importantly, it will go beyond that. Um, it will not ever be thrown down, not though the sea should drown all the land. You know, like in case that ever happens. Um, and of course, it goes on to say it, it's going to happen. Um,
4: what do you make of this, Laura? Go ahead. You want to follow up on that? Yeah, is that symbolic of the of the ultimate victory of death over over Morgoth, over evil, and also over just the transitory nature of of physical things too? Well, yeah, see, and that's the thing, is
0: that it's it's the thing, that I think, you know, basically this this also brings us back to the question of why the Children of Hurin is such an important story to the Eldar, not just in the human context, but to the Eldar as well, and it seems a little odd that, you know, if, if we're right in understanding the story of the Children of Hurin as this sort of quintessential human story, nevertheless it seems strange that that should be—if we're going to take— you know, the Stone of the Hapless, the tombstone of Turin, Neonor, and Morwin. she's on there too, because Hurin carves her on the stone. Um, If we're going to take their tombstone as the memorial of Beleriand, I mean, it is the last remnant of the First Age. Um, In what sense is that appropriate? Because, you know, the First Age is really is really very elf centric. I mean, I know we've talked many times about how this story is an elf centric version of it, but, but really by any standard, the elves have been the primary players in the first stage. Um, that is certainly between the elves and the humans. Um, and, uh, and I think that it's, it's in that way a little bit counterintuitive, you know. You'd think if there's going to be a memorial of the First Age, I mean, if there's one sort of central core of the First Age, it's got to be Baron and Luthien's story, right? Not Turin's story. Um, you know, you'd think that there would be some monument of the of the union between elves and and men, which is, you know, which which a- achieves its its fulfillment. Um, you know, it's it's greatest and sort of most transcendent beauty in the story of Baron and Luthien and their triumph over Morgoth and everything. You'd think that would be that would be the one that would be the memorial. You know, if if there's going to be one take home from the from the first age, it'd be that, right? But appa- no, it's not. It's not, Nick.
3: Yeah, just a quick comment. Um, am I right in saying that the heathen races of man were some of the only um, some of the only people that Burn their dead consistently wait. Um, and that they're, they were aligned with Morgoth in, in comparison to this.
0: That the heathen wait, so I, said I lost you a little bit in the middle there. Could you say it again?
3: The, 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 the heathen races of men, those that are aligned with, with Morgo, am I right in, in saying that they were the only ones that
0: consistently
3: cremated their dead?
0: Well uh, let's see I don't want to I think that seems to me like it would be slightly overstating the case. Um, we do find those races of men which do become corrupt or are easily susceptible to corruption, um, just as appears to be the case in the Third Age. You know, you've know, you got all those Easterlings um, who apparently have all fallen under the sway of Sauron. Which So it kind of seems in the human demographics of Middle-earth in the Third Age the the uh, you know the the subgroups of humanity who are resisting Sauron appear to be deviant, basically, um, compared to the majority, the the Haradrim, the Easterlings, um, that you know the, coming under the sway of 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 Sauron seems to be what's normal. And so, in that sense, I think that we kind of can say that. But I don't want to. But I don't think it's quite right to say that. Other than the three kindreds of the Edain that we see in Beleriand, we can kind of assume that all the rest of humanity is actively serving Morgoth. They are ignorant. I mean, the one thing that you can say about them is that they haven't, they don't know anything about the Valar or eluvatar They might have heard rumors, they might have formed, um, you know, myths that, you know, and stories which may be sort of variously accurate or, or confused, um we know that the 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 learning the true learning of the adain which comes from the elves which comes from the valar um is is different um and you know unlike anything that other men had or have um but uh but i don't think but i don't think necessarily evil um and one of the things that i guess i would point to would be um examples like for instance the bremen um you know we're told that the bremen have been in that area for a really long time you know for, for 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 millennia and they're just like they were always minding their own business and they're still kind of minding their own business they're not um you know so it, we we there seems to be certainly at least potential for plenty of people just to be kind of carrying on um and not you know, like we serve the evil mastermind and worship Satan, um, as many of the rest of them do very actively. Uh, But, uh, yeah, Joe? Oh, wait, no, Joe didn't want to talk. He wanted to enter the room. Oh, so I got the wrong wrong little dialogue box there. Welcome, Joe. Um, (laughs) Sorry, my mistake. Um, But, yes, I think that this is, it makes you know, coming back to, coming back to the, the stone of the hapless, um, the two other things that I would point to, uh, there are two other, uh, you know, close reading elements is what this monument is called in the two times it's named. I think both times are really significant and really interesting, especially in the context of the Turin -Turin bar story. Um, this, this grave site is called two things, the stone of the hapless, Which means the unlucky, the unfortunate hap just means luck. Um the stone of the unlucky, the stone of the hapless, um and Tol Morwen. Tol now Tol means Tol means island, um so after the land is drowned, um and all that's left is the stone of the hapless, it is called Tol Morwin, the island of Morwen. Um so what do you guys make of first the fact that the three people who are collectively whose memorials are carved on this stone are called the hapless and secondly why the island is named not after turin uh you know mr me of a hundred names um nor of neanor but of morwen um those are i think both of them interesting and sort of suggestive things brandon go ahead
2: um just like can I answer something before uh comment <laughs> sure, something sure. right before that um I think that, <laughs> uh I think that uh the um the unlucky suggests a lot because if they're unlucky then therefore the elvish must have some kind of concept of luck or chance and therefore don't have a kind of idea of divine providence that perhaps men do i don't know
0: yeah i don't know i mean it is it does kind of i mean certainly the lord of the rings kind of kind of trains us you know whenever we see luck or chance to add you know or so it's called afterwards um and yeah and i don't think i don't think necessarily that we need conclude that this means that that the elves don't understand about that um I mean, I guess another way you could kind of paraphrase it is like you know the the stone of the stone of those people who were really totally hosed by their destinies. There, um, Dave, what were you gonna say? I was
8: gonna give a more cynical answer. I was gonna say that the elves were being kind. Um, uh, I think I personally think we've covered this kind of talking about Turin Turambar, how he's. He's mentioned Elrond mentions him in a list of great men Hurin, turin baron, and then of course frodo uh and I kind of think that uh that this is another example of the elves being sort of um um overly kind they're like well let's uh <clears throat> let's name it after Morwen, who's the the like who really bears minimum responsibility for the set of events that took place in um um uh in uh, uh, the, all the events described in Turin. I feel like, I mean, you, maybe you could argue that in in the when she makes her early decision where she sends Turin to, to Doriath and doesn't go with him, that she right. bears some responsibility. But other than that, I think she was pretty blameless. Uh, and so maybe they, the elves were thinking, well, if this is going to be a lasting monument, let's name it after the person whose fault it was least.
0: I, like I said, this is a, a, a pretty cynical reading, completely yeah. cynical yeah. answer,
8: but uh, I think it's fair to bring up at least.
0: Uh, yeah, you know, it's like, well, Morwin doesn't get any props, so let's, uh, what the heck, let's name it after Morwin. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, eh, what do you think, Laura?
4: Well, I had uh, just maybe a slightly different uh, uh, interpretation of the name, um, the hapless, uh, meaning the luckless, uh, that... You know, they didn't they didn't get any of that interva- intervention by Illuvatar. They didn't have any luck at all. Um, not that it was necessarily uh, bad luck, uh, but that they just didn't have they didn't have that intervention by Illuvatar. They were they were more or less um sort of let go by any intervention of, of a higher power to um to, to help them. So I guess that's a little bit different than saying they had bad luck, that they just didn't have any luck.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it's it's yeah, the the, the right, the hapless, it's not the it's not the, the, the stone of the of the of the unfortunate. It's uh, yes, of those who were completely without hap. Um, You know, yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, certainly things, you know, as we talked about last week, things do not come around for them, Um, and uh, and for Morwin again. I think it's it's, you know, to me, I kind of would take it. You know, coming back to 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 Dave's point, I think it kind of gives some significance to the the victory that Morwin achieves. Um, You know, you've got. She seems like an add-on. I mean, she's literally an add-on on the stone. I mean, this is the stone that's erected for Turin and Neonor, and Hurin comes and he's like, plus Morwin at the bottom. Um, but uh, but she's the one who conquers. And, you know, and I sort of wonder, you know, if in a sense, if the story of the, of the Hurin family is the most indicative of sort of mortal suffering and what it's like to be in... Arda Mard, um, Morwen is in the end, not, as you say, Laura, not always necessarily from the beginning. Um, but at the end, um, she's, uh, uh, she's, she's definitely, uh, the one who, who is, who is sort of being, being the best example. Um, Matt, go ahead.
9: Uh, yes. Can you
0: hear me? I can.
9: Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think, you know, you can't even characterize it that the, uh, her and his family uh, cause a downfall of these elves because, I mean, this is ultimately the doom of uh, the Noldor, which they brought on themselves, and these poor, unwitting uh, humans have been uh, kind of uh, become a catalyst, uh, you know, to bring down their downfall or instruments of their downfall, and they've kind of got swept up in this whole giant story of the... Uh, of, uh, the downfall, the diminishing of the elves, and, uh, and, and in that way, uh, they've been uh, punished just as much by the by the uh, actions of uh, the Noldor previously, um, and the, which led to the doom of uh, of Mandos.
0: Right, right, yeah, no, I agree. I mean, and the, the, there is certainly a, a sense in which. They've been caught in the crossfire here, you know, that they are that, you know, you think of the discussions that the humans had um after right after they came into Beleriand and the debates, you know, like, hey, what why do we want to get involved here? You know, we we we, we we've come here and because we thought it was nice over here and we were getting away from the darkness. And now we find that actually this is we're going to be cannon fodder. So let's uh let's get the heck out of here. Um so, yeah, I mean, this seems to be, in one sense, you could see the response of the elves to the story of Hurin and Morwen and their family as being almost like a recognition of that. You know, this is, um, and again, that kind of brings me back to that that parallel between Morwen's long uh, and solitary vigil at the gravesite of her children and Hurin's uh, stubborn resistance in the fens of serech Um yeah i mean i think that we can see them being in that sense uh victims and and this sense in which you know they 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 were um you know victims beyond their own uh you know beyond their their own intentions and their own understanding um Okay, we should, uh, for those of you who are despairing that we're going to get through this chapter this week, we totally are. Um even if you look at our discussion notes like more than half of it was on Húrin and stuff at the beginning. Um so I knew that uh we had a lot to say about this and I wanted to talk about this a lot. But uh um but let us move on to the Doriath section which actually is in some ways I think kind of simpler. Um but uh Matt did you have something that you wanted to uh to to add before we went off to Doriath?
9: I mean yet yet this was just a, an interjection uh, aside from the general discussion um w- One point I wanted to make was i've I've read many times over the years that um many modern fantasy writers kind of uh write their writings tend to be real dark in tone and everything, and I've often heard the comment that this might be kind of in response to uh those writers uh kind of not appreciating talking and, and and just wanting to get away from what they thought was a fantasy that was too pretty and too uh too you know uh too much a good and evil type thing mm-hmm. but it it seems to me that these people may never have read the Silmarillion
0: <laughs> yeah I think that that's true of course some of them when they talk about the Lord of the Rings uh you wonder if they've ever read that but uh but yeah no I think it's pretty safe to say uh that they certainly don't seem to have thought too much about the Silmarillion in any case um yeah, no, I think that that's, uh, I think that that's, that that's perfectly fair. Um, if, uh, if anyone is ever tempted to think that, you know, that Tolkien is too, everybody lives happily ever after. Um, I mean, again, I don't know how you can even come to the last chapter of the Lord of the Rings still thinking that in Frodo's departure, but, um, but, uh, but anyway, um, yeah, certainly nobody's going to read these chapters and still be thinking that. Um, but uh but okay, so uh so so on to Doriath. We have Hurin's final uh confrontation with Meme and Hurin finally not having mer- having mercy on Meme. Uh Meme attempting a third time to pay off somebody who he thinks is going to kill him, and uh and and Hurin having none of it. Um and then he takes the Nauglamir. Now, now i you know, a couple of you were sort of interested in asking about um you know what the sort of the evolution of this story is and sort of the 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 connections with the book of lost tales and and you know sort of how this story came about it's really complicated um this changes a lot from the from the book of of lost tales um one thing i want to come back to um, is basically the role that the Silmaril plays in this. Uh, it's one thing that's that's most striking when you read the Book of Lost Tales version. You know, it's the very first version of this part of the story, um, the Silmaril is actually a pretty minor character. What ensnares Thingol and what brings about the destruction, what leads to the feud between Thingol and the dwarves, and what brings about the destruction of Doriath, is not the the his and the dwarves' coveting of the Silmarils, um, it's the go- it's the hoard of uh, of of Nargothrond. Um, in the original version of the story, Hurin, uh, who's called Urin, Urin um, brings he first of all has a, a a gang of men with him that he has kind of picked up in the wild like Turin did, and they like put the as much of the gold as they can possibly carry from Nargothrond into you know bags and boxes and wheelbarrows and backpacks and haul it to. Uh, to Doriath, and then they and the elves fight over it. I mean, and they shed their blood on the. Uh, they they take it from Meme, and Meme curses it, and then they take it, and then they fight uh, with the elves of Doriath over it, and the elves of Doriath kill most of them. Um, and then, so it gets it's cursed. The gold of the gold is cursed three times, cursed by Glaurung, cursed by Meme, and then cursed by the blood that shed over it. Uh, when it's seized, uh, ultimately, by by Thingol and his people. Um, So the Curse of the Gold, and especially of Meme, actually. Meme is a much more important character in the original version of it. Um... And his curse is very powerful, so basically you've got this—you've got this cursed gold, and that's what keeps causing all of these problems. And that's ultimately what leads—it's his decision. Um, the Melian character, Melian doesn't it does not yet have that name, and her name changes lots of times during the first draft of this story. Um, but anyway, the, the Melian character is still not being, or is already not being listened to, and she says, "This gold is bad news. Throw it in the river." and um, and, uh, uh, and Thingol first says, okay, yeah, we'll do that, and then, uh, and then he decides not to, you know, that, you know, there's this other guy who's like, oh, but don't you really want to keep the gold? And Thingol's like, oh, well, okay, actually, yeah. Um, anyway, so that's what brings it about. I think that the shifting, the shifting of the focus, sort of the, 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 the bringing about of the tragedy from this cursed gold of Narga, this thrice cursed gold from Nargothrond to the Silmaril, uh, is really fascinating because you know the heritage there is that the stuff itself, the gold itself, is just is bad news. It is damaged goods. It is if you if you try to 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 get it, it will destroy anybody who tries to keep it because it is so thoroughly cursed. The Silmarils, though, as we'll remember, are hallowed. They're sacred. They're holy. Um, they burn unholy hands that touch them. So, I think that. Uh, you know this that that's a really fascinating shift i think um and well just looking at this story what do you make of the what do you what do you make of the silmaril and the role that the silmaril plays and i'm not yet thinking about the sons of fanor here just just thingol and uh, and and the dwarves um what do we do with this how do you how do you read thingol's um relationship with the Silmaril. We've had other references, of course. That is, we've seen Thingol um refusing he refuses first to yield up the Silmarils to the sons of Feanor when they demand it. You remember at the beginning uh at the beginning of the the, the chapter, right after the end of the story of Baron and Luthien, at the very beginning of the Near Ninth chapter, um, he refuses to give it up. Um and now we see him really focusing on it. What do you make of this? I mean, are are the Silmarils just bad news? I mean, are the Silmarils like the cursed gold? Is there is is there just a curse on the Silmarils? They 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 bring about the destruction of everything. I mean, what do you think? Yeah, I, Joe, go ahead. I think you might as well you might as well talk about that. Well, here, Matt first, and then uh, and then okay, we finally got some volunteers here. Matt, go ahead. Yeah, I
9: just think that in general, anything precious and unique and one of a kind seems to I think that what's happening here, it's it's the greed for that thing that, that is the curse uh, not the thing itself they lose sight of what the thing might be what it what its power might be, what it might be good for and get absorbed in actually the possession of the thing
0: yeah, no I mean I, I, I agree, I think that that's the most important effect of the shift The um, that is, it is the curse that is laid upon the gold that makes stuff happen. Including, for instance, explicitly, Baron is able to defeat the king of Nagrod uh, in their final duel in the river. Uh, because just as Baron is going to lose or he might lose anyway, and the dwarf the the king of the Dwarves is about to to you know to aim his final killing blow, but then the curse strikes him, and his foot slips on a stone and he falls over and it's, I mean again it 's like it is because the curse comes up and bites him that he that he gets into that trouble um Whereas here, as you say, Matt, the shift is from the—it's not the stuff; it's not the curse. It's on the stuff that's that's causing events. It's the choices that people make. It's how people respond to it. Um, Dave,
7: well, as
8: usual, you jerk stole my point. <laughs> um, uh, but I—I I was pretty much—I was going to say a variation of what you guys just said. That I think the. The problem lies not in the object, but in the people that are possessing it, um, which is which is distinctly different from the ring. I remember the first time I read this book, I found myself constantly going to that comparison, like the Silmarillion. The Silmarils are like the ring, you know, the central artifact of of the Silmarillion, and I tended to think of them as serving a similar role to the ring, but they really don't, because uh, I really think that the Silmarils themselves, it's almost sort of like, the, this is like a, um, a bizarre sort of metaphor for the the old saying that the um, the road to hell is paid with good intentions. You right. know what I mean? Like the Silmarils themselves are are good things. The light in them is good. Like the pursuit of them is like the pursuit of the good and yet yet you see evil consequences coming of it anyway because the people pursuing it are, are not, you know, in and of themselves, maybe not, Maybe it's not that they're not good. They are some of them are good, but they're still imperfect. But what's interesting is um, what makes the sum really different from the ring in this sense. And boy, I'm really going off on a tangent, but I'm going to keep going. Um, <laughs> is possession of them is not necessarily evil. Um, it's certainly possessing it is certainly not particularly good for Morgoth or for Thingol. Um, uh, but um, on the other hand, when you look at how they describe, and I'm jumping ahead now, but when you look at how they describe um, the effect of the Silmarils on Luthien when she possesses them in the land of the dead that still live, they describe how it had plenty and bounty and good, you know, unlike anything that came afterward during the time that they had it. And certainly possessing the Silmaril was good for Elwing and for Arendil, because it helped them open, you know, or at least we're led to believe it helps them open the passage to the west. And so I, I don't think there's a curse on the Silmarils. Maybe there's a curse on everything else, all the other treasure, on the Nauglamir later and things like that. But I think the Silmarils remain good, and that it really ends up being the people around them that that, that bring about bad consequences. And maybe that's the curse of the Noldor in effect, or maybe it's just you know imperfect people acting badly. But um, it is interesting that... Folks who come into possession of them in sort of a bad way, Morgoth and Thingol, and later the sons of Feanor, tend to suffer bad consequences because of them. Uh, Folks who possess it for short periods of time, you know, but not actually desiring it, like Beren and Luthien, don't suffer too many ill points um, uh, or, or, or ill effects. So there's something very interesting going on.
0: Yeah, no, I agree, and I think that, that 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 last point especially I would I I would emphasize. Um, Baron and Luthien are possibly the least possessive of all Silmaril holders in the whole story, um, because for them it was never about the Silmaril; it was about each other, and the Silmaril was only a means to an end. On the one hand, it was their great and high destiny, and and Baron's doom, and all that, but uh, but really, it was never actually about the Silmaril for them, and for Thingol. You're right to point out that his, you know, we think of even thinking about the kind of language that Gandalf uses talking about uh, a Bilbo finding the ring, um, you know, how his 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 possession of the ring starts, the frame of mind in which it started. Um, well, the frame of mind in which Thingol acquires the Silmarils is pretty bad. Um, and remember Melian points this out to him immediately uh you know that you have brought um you know that you have doomed yourself she says um you have doomed either your daughter or yourself um so she says right away if you get a silmaril like it's curtains for you that's it um and uh so yeah so he 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 is um, now, now we we saw at the beginning of the near ninth Arnoidead when he refuses to give up the ring or not the ring. Listen to me. When he refuses to give up the Silmarils to the sons of Feanor, he's he cites some good motives. Like, oh, you know, Baron and Luthien. Like, I, I'm just doing it because I'm remembering Baron and Luthien. And like, you know, there were they were. It's not about the Silmaril or anything. You know, it's about like what Baron and Luthien did. um, but uh, but we can see that's sort of a little bit of rationalization on, on, on their part. Now, it might seem, perhaps, that I am disagreeing with you, Dave, and, and paralleling the Silmarils and the Ring again, but you're right to differentiate the two of them. The Silmarils don't have the kind of corruptive influence directly upon their their holders. If they bring out bad things in people, it's because what they are is like the, that which is quintessentially beautiful and good and therefore desirable, and it's that desire which well, it, is, is sort of the touchstone for, is sort of the moral touchstone for 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 people. But go ahead.
8: It seems to it seems to bring out the ring itself. Um, the ring brings out bad in people who possess it as much as it does in people who who desire it. Mm-hmm. So even Dobo keeps it for a long time and it starts to corrupt him. Right. The Silverells really the only people that really seem to um, you know, I mean, you could argue that it shortened the lifespan of Baron and Luthien, but, but it really, like, it's people who are going about trying to acquire them, um, that it really, that they really sort of, uh, those are the people that really suffer from or, they don't, it, they don't directly maim or harm or corrupt or hurt anyone except people who are already evil, so like Morgoth and the sons of Feanor and those sorts of people. Like, when you know, Fingal's possession of it isn't particularly good, and yet at the same time, it's not like they made him steadily more evil or anything. That The pride that he demonstrates at the end with the dwarves is pride that was always there. He was all, he was like that with Baron before he even had a um, a Silmaril, so yes. I think they're quintessentially different. Although one thing I would point out, one way in which they are certainly similar is that... Uh, you know, when somebody happens to acquire them or come into possession of them under good circumstances, let's say Bilbo in the ring, let's say um, Baron and Luthien in the Someril, the people that they hand them off to are to generally end up paying the price. Frodo gets screwed over with the <laughs> ring. I mean, his life's pretty much ruined. And then, uh, let's see, Baron and Luthien give it to Thingol, and then he ends up dying, and his kingdom's destroyed. And then Baron and Luthien go and get it back, and then they give it to their son, Dior, and then he dies, and the kingdom gets destroyed (laughs) again. I mean, if if anyone ever walks up and says, would you like a Silmaril, your answer should be no.
0: (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Though of course, uh, also if you're sitting there saying, "Boy, I really want to get a Silmaril no matter what," that's also not very. That's also not a very good sign either. Um, yeah, no, I agree. I agree. Um, Laura, I, I, I get the sense that uh, we've been saying a lot of the things that you wanted to say, but I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you jump in
4: here too. Um, <clears throat> yeah, but you guys said it so well. You said it better <laughs> than I ever could. So that was okay. Um, but I did want to point out. Um, one thing that's that's different uh, and interesting to me about the Silmaril and the Ring, in that uh, the Silmaril, when uh, when mortals have it, when Baron and Luthien have it, they die quickly. Mm-hmm. But the Ring extends your life to the point that it's meaningless, yes. you know, like with Gollum. Yes. That's what it does to mortals. And I thought that was uh kind of an interesting contrast that the the silmaril which doesn't really have any power in itself other than beauty and um and that's about it and and the ring which is this bad thing and does have power you know the one shortens your life and the one extends your life um, so I guess, I guess what Tolkien is saying there is that, you know, long life is not necessarily a good thing. Right. Um, right. especially for a mortal. Uh, but, you know, this sh- short period of, of absolute beauty, beauty, uh, unlike that had ever been seen outside of Eleanor, is a good thing, even if it is a short thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, of course, you've got Gollum, and then you've got the Ringwraiths to show what happens to to mortal people who have it. And in this sense, uh, you know, one major difference, in addition, as you say, to the corruptive power, you know, the evil power of the Ring, uh, which the Silmarils don't have, the Silmarils are an end in themselves to some extent, whereas the Ring is a means to an end. The Ring is a means to power, and also a, a means to immortality for mortal creatures. And when you're using the ring as a means to either one of those ends, it's very bad, and it corrupts you, um, and it sort of amplifies the corruption that those desires already represent. And, um, and as you say, it's totally, it's, it is, it is, it is obviously inappropriate based upon the outcomes. It's obviously inappropriate for, uh, for mortal creatures to be uh, attaining immortality in this kind of. uh, you know, sort of sick and and, uh, and half-hearted way. Uh, Half-hearted—that's not quite right, is it? Um, but yeah, the lives. So their lives being shortened is, in a sense, not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I uh, I would say. I mean, for uh, clearly the parallel, the the closest parallel that we have to the the sort of premature death of Baron and Luthien is Frodo. Uh, you know, Frodo is gonna die very soon when he at the end of the story he goes to valinor um you know he's taken overseas to find healing but he's mortal and he's going to die yeah. really soon when he goes over there
4: yeah and that death was really a blessing to him i mean he was ex- expecting as you said before expecting to die he didn't die and his life had become a burden and so that that death um in amongst such bliss was was uh, ultimately a blessing
0: yeah yeah no exactly. I mean, Dr. I... Kevorkian <laughs> no, this is not this is what well I guess like euthanasia I, by like bliss. I can't resist that...
8: injecting, but <laughs> but but I when you put it that way, when you say like, well, he was on his way out and he was going to suffer greatly, and they decided to take him over there where and and of course, the elves had to have known that the bliss would burn him out and make him die sooner. How is that not euthanasia? Well, well, we'll kill him earlier than he would otherwise die, but he'll feel better during that time. The question? It's, it's, I, I'm, I'm being a little facetious, but only partially. When I, sometimes when I think about that, if any, if any of those elves had foreknowledge of what would occur, it is a strikingly very similar situation to what we think of as euthanasia. It's kind of bizarre. Uh, only just just wanted know. to toss
0: that in. No, I, 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 I. Well, I hear that. I hear that. Laura, go ahead. Laura, did you want to respond to that?
4: Yeah, Dave. The only reason I didn't uh, interrupt you is because I know how hard it is to edit that out. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, I wasn't saying that it was like suicide. You know, I was saying that you know, Frodo had these wounds that, um, you know. It, I, I don't believe we're even fully healed over in in Elven um, and the only release for him was death I mean I'm not saying and, and that's true of, of every mortal person um, you know you there are some things that just don't heal and in some cases death is a blessing that doesn't mean you're you're going out and you know advocating suicide for for people, but just the chance for him, for Frodo to be as happy as he could be in those last years of his life. Um, I, I think that was the point of the elves bringing him over there—not to extend his life, but you know that he could be happy for that that last amount of time that he did have well and i mean you can see it
0: uh as a parallel to again instead of thinking of dr kavorkian we could think about aragorn essentially and his rendering up of his life willingly um when he had come to its end frodo is maimed frodo is uh, frodo is not well frodo is dying uh when he leaves the shire um he and he finds healing he is blessed with healing and peace. Um, how much sooner did he die than he would have died? I don't know. Um, but, uh, um, but he is uh, that kind of the, the attitude that apparently uh, Frodo adopts towards his own mortality um, at the end, um, because he seemed, he accepts it um, is I think, more like to, it's not like to go back to something that we didn't talk about uh yet it's not like hurin's death um where hurin would live no longer and you know he, he he wouldn't live and cast himself into the sea and that's different from frodo i think um you know from from frodo's going in by both of them go in the sea to the west one with a boat and one without um but uh but i think that that's um that I think is is the really important contrast there. Um, there's a huge difference between seeking death or you know fleeing life and accepting death again, Aragorn doesn't commit suicide, but he lays himself down and dies and I think that that's that's that is the idea i mean Aragorn's death I think is pretty clearly held up to us as the, the mortal ideal. Like this is the attitude you're supposed to have towards death. This is the attitude that people had towards death before uh, death was, death was corrupted before, before, you know, the shadows and lies of Morgoth uh, surrounded it. Um, but uh, 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 Joe as our euthanasia debate has been raging. You've been very patient. Let me let you get in here.
7: <laughs> uh yeah, it's alright. I'm, I'm backtracking a little bit now, but um, relating back to uh, the Naglamir making it into uh, Doria, um, I just thought it was interesting because you saw, I mean, just you saw it make it in there and it seems like a result of numerous things. Uh, the most obvious seems to be the curse of the Noldor. I mean, I don't know exactly why Hurin went to uh, Narcthon. I can't really remember, but he just comes out with this most beautiful thing that Happens to capture Thingol's mind, and he'll say, "Oh, I'll put this together with the Silmaril, and then the dwarves get involved, and then there's death and all kinds of sad, sad things happen from it." But it just—I mean, it's just the chain of events that happen from that—it's crazy. But it doesn't seem like it's only the curse of the Noldor, because I mean, what led him to do that was the curse of Morgoth, and I mean, and also how it all ties in and it all wraps up to something crazy in the end. I mean, something some better things happen, and you can almost go back to the beginning and saying, "Um." You know, uh, evil be good to have been, and things like that. But yeah, no, I'm mean, just a yeah. You can, it's it's interesting. Sorry. <laughs> no,
0: I agree. I agree, and I think that that's, um, you know, that kind of brings me back again to something we were also talking about last time, which is, you know, when we were thinking about Turin and especially Glaurung, and asking, you know, what's Glaurung's plan? What's Morgoth's plan? I mean, really, did he actually foresee and orchestrate the meeting of of you know, like, naked and no memory uh Neonor with Turin, and that's like, that w- that was actually consciously the plan. Maybe, as we said, we can't rule that out completely, but I think with Hurin's release, we see another, we see some pretty clear example that Morgoth doesn't necessarily foresee all that. Um He lets Hurin go, not with a specific strategy, you know, not like, okay, I know exactly how Hurin is going to facilitate the destruction of Doriath, but it seems at the beginning pretty clear that Morgoth is just letting him go because he's like, hey, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Basically, he can only do harm at this point. So let's let him go and see what happens. And uh, and then he's sitting back there and he's like, oh, he's revealed the region of of, of Gondolin. Okay, check. That's a good thing. And now he, he ends up doing this other thing. Oh, great. You know, so we'll, we'll let him screw things. We'll just leave him on his own to screw things up, Um, which does kind of lead one to suggest that, like when Glaurung does not kill Turin the first time and lets him go and sends him off on the wrong path, um, you know, it does kind of seem that that's almost like the release of Hurin, that what he's really doing is saying, hey, man, you know, these these mortals, you know, if I just wind them up and let them go, you know, bad stuff's going to happen, which is all going to be, uh, which is going to be good. So, um, that is good from Morgoth's perspective. Um, but, uh, 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 you know, Dave is still furiously carrying on the euthanasia argument in the text chat here uh do you would you like to would would you like to come back on with this or or or, or, are you and laura taking it outside at this point what's going on here no
8: i've sidetracked this too long there's no chance of finishing this chapter if we don't get back on track
0: oh man we're almost done what are you talking about okay so um so, and by the way, you're totally finished. I don't know. Week. I think we
8: probably need another week.
0: I knew you would say that, but no. Okay, so uh, back to Thingol then. Let's let's look at Thingol's final confrontation with uh, with with the dwarves. And I think that Matt was right to say that we definitely need a reading of uh, Thingol's last and rather unfortunate speech uh, that he makes there to the dwarves. Um, what do we think about that? Let's see first question actually would be where is that i think i skipped the page there the dwarves okay right 233 right okay yep there we are okay volunteers who would like to read it matt you want to go
9: um uh, i'm sure i'll do it can you hear me i can yeah okay um <clears throat> How do ye of uncouth race dare to demand aught of me, Elu Thingol, lord of Beleriand, whose life began by the waters of Quibiaven, years uncounted ere the fathers of the stunted people awoke? I, this seems to be a recurring theme uh, here. It's like as soon as the elves and the dwarves have a disagreement, the uh, the elves just go nuclear with their, you know, <laughs> <laughs> just dissing the dwarves and just, uh, you know, you know. Mocking them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, it, it, of course it's it's very similar. The tone of it is very similar to his speech to Baron, of course, at the beginning of Baron and Luthian. Thingle looked upon Baron in scorn and anger. Who are you that come hither as a thief and unbidden dare to approach my throne? Uh, what would you hear, unhappy mortal? And for what cause have you left your own land to enter this which is forbidden to such as you? Can you show reason why my power shall should not be laid on you in heavy punishment for your insolence and folly? Um, you could see a very similar tone there. Laura?
4: Yeah, I'm just trying to think if anybody else throws out these unwarranted insults like Fingal does. I mean, he, he just, just really throws them out there you know he does he just has scorn for everybody lesser than he and it's a good thing melian didn't have that kind of scorn for him when they got together <laughs> who are ye
0: who just awoke by the waters of quevienn yeah no exactly she she could have taken that line um no i think that I, that's definitely a good point um well one thing to remember he's not the worst um remember that Karinthir used to hunt the dwarves when he first saw them, um, not even apparently realizing that it's, uh, um, that it's, you know, that they are like sentient creatures. And then it's like, oh wait, you know, they actually speak and are rational. We, we should probably not just kill them out of hand. Um, but remember Karinthir's scorn for the unloveliness of the dwarves. Um, But, uh, so, so we have seen, you know, so in some ways we see, you know, the, uh, you know, dark Caranthier, um, of the Sons of Feanor having an even more pronounced scorn than Thingol does. Um, Thingol at least repents of it, at least as far as humans are concerned, he repents of it after, you know, so he's he's kind of taking back his words to Baron. Um He doesn't get a chance to take back his words to the dwarves. Um, but obviously, this is not just an expression of Thingol's character, but obviously an expression of the pride which he is already exercising, which he's already, well, exercising, perhaps not quite the right word, um, you know, which he is also demonstrating Um, through his attachment to the Silmaril, right? I mean, it's not difficult to see, uh, the connection of those two things, um, that just as he is sort of being possessive and, and, uh, and focused on the Silmaril that he's thinking a lot, you know, his, his thoughts are, have turned inward, um, and towards himself. And now he is completely oblivious, um completely oblivious to even even his own situation i mean he's so his 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 self image is so is so altered now um by the way that his that the pride which has been gaining in him through his contemplation of the silmaril um has been, uh, you know, it's he, 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 as I say, his, his own self-image is so changed that he now completely underestimates his situation, like Feanor himself, of course. Remember, Mister, like I'm going to go sack uh, Angband by myself, um, and you know, gets killed by the Balrogs. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think that we can see that pretty. Quick. Of course, there's also the you know the the sort of the delightful irony that that Thingol gets killed by the by the dwarves. Um, And then it is emphasized that he is the tallest of all of the children of Elufatar. You sort of imagine, at least I always imagine the dwarves kind of chopping him down at the ankles. Um, But um, one thing I would say about Thingol here is that Thingol is. He actually, although he i mean he does really you know admittedly sound like a jerk in that speech, and we can see this as part of a pattern of pride which has existed in him all the way through and is has been growing in him of late. Tolkien changed this story in ways which were actually really quite pro um, thingle um is much more shallow and a much bigger jerk in the, in the lost tales version of this story, um, where he, first of all, the, the back and the, the, the back and forth thing between him and the dwarves and their negotiations of, you know, what they're going to get paid and everything is he is very high handed. He's, he's petty. He's a, he's a sharp dealer. Uh, you know, he, um, just does, does not look tragic and grand in any way. Um, the Thingle in this of course his name isn't Thingle yet in the Book of Lost Tales. It is Tinwellent. Um Tinwellent is uh is a smaller character. I mean in almost every dimension, smaller. He doesn't have the stature of 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 Thingle, either physical or sort of spiritual. Um but here this is uh um this is Sort of this one lapse, right, this one blindness that he has he is he is great, but he's been led into this blindness by his pride and expresses that that pride and that blindness in this one moment, not even realizing you know hi, I'm in danger here, I am outnumbered, um even though I'm you know Mr. Awesome Elven King, I am in fact um unarmed in the midst of potential enemies whom I'm now going to mock and yell at um but uh. But anyway, I mean, I think that uh, it, it, it it is, I think, interesting that the, the changes that Tolkien does make, I think, are basically to elevate Fingal and to make him, in a sense, anyway, more of a tragic figure here, I mean. But um, uh, what do you make of Melian, though? I mean, apart from the fact that still nobody is listening to her. What are your thoughts about Melian and her role in this chapter, or lack of role in this chapter? Laura?
4: Well I'm surprised she didn't say I told you so I've been trying to tell you these things but nobody listens to me yeah. um you know I thought it was uh her uh response after Thingol's death was was interesting and I sort of wondered if she regretted her choice to <laughs> to marry him and you know take a a, a body that was tied um you know more like an elven body than she had before um and you know i wonder if her uh, it, it says she went back to valinor to go to the gardens of lorien and to and to ponder um her sorrows but uh you know i i just wonder if if she's pondering the sorrows of of being married to to thingol uh if she would have done things differently um you know, if if she was uh, wanted to be closer to him, I don't know. I I just felt like there was a little bit of regret in in uh, in Melian after Thingol's death.
6: Yeah, I don't know.
0: I don't know. I mean, it's hard. I mean, I I certainly don't think we can take that too far. Um, that is, I mean, I think if we. Uh, especially with all of the Thingol bashing that has been going on for months uh, in this seminar, you know, we can kind of, we might be able to work ourselves into a place where we convince ourselves that Melian's response certainly would be, you know, like free at last, free at last when 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 Thingol is dead. But I, I certainly don't think that the um, that the text gives us much excuse for for thinking in that direction, for thinking quite so far as that. Um, I mean, what is emphasized is, right after his death, what is emphasized about um, uh, her... Her thoughts is her connection to Thingol and her love for him. Uh, Melian sat long in silence, the very bottom of 233. Melian sat long in silence beside Thingol the king, and her thought passed back into the starlit years and to their first meeting among the nightingales of Nan Elmoth in ages past. And she knew that her parting from Thingol was the forerunner of a greater parting, and that the doom of Doriath was drawing nigh. For Melian was of the divine race of the Valar, and she was a Maya of great power and wisdom. But for love of Elwe Singolo she took upon herself the form of the elder children of Iluvatar, and in that union she became bound by the chain and trammels of the flesh of Arda. In that form she bore to him Luthien Tenuvio, and in that form she gained a power over the substance of Arda, and by the girdle of Melian was Doriath defended through long ages from the evils without. But now Thingol lay dead, and his spirit had passed to the halls of Mandos, and with his death a change came also upon Melian. Thus it came to pass that her power was withdrawn in that time from the forests of Neldoreth and Regian, and as Galjuin the enchanted river spoke with a different voice, and Doriath lay open to its enemies um one parallel that I would well, okay, there are a bunch of people waiting to talk. Let me not make my parallel for fear of uh stealing somebody's thunder again uh, you you guys go first, and then I'll say what I want to say Chris, go ahead okay i I guess
1: what's always. Troubled me about Melian at this point from the first time I read the Silmarillion. It's like she has been the queen of the people of Doriath for millennia, and yeah, she's suffered a tragedy, but she's presumably going to see Single again once, you know, maybe a long time in the future and he's released from Mandos. If she'd have hung around a little while, uh, maybe she could have kept uh, the Doriath from being completely destroyed. It, it almost seems I know motivations of Amaya might be more complicated than than what I'm saying, but it almost seems uh, um, disloyal to her. to I mean, she took on the body of an elf, and so she and she acted as queen for these people for so long. Um, she just pretty much abandoned them when they needed her most. So I guess that's what I, always uh, um, troubled me about her actions at this point
0: yeah no uh, I hear what reading. you're saying and I I you know for years had that same exact reaction I mean I remember very clearly um, thinking that exact same thing when I when I first read this and thinking wow Melian really quit on him didn't she I mean you know the only reason that the Dwarves come in and the only reason Doriath is sacked in the end is because she's like abdicated, you know, she's like, well, you know, whatever, I'm taking the girdle away and I'm just gonna, you know, y'all are on your own. Um, yeah, I I mean, I think, I I don't think that this passage actually suggests that that's the case. I think there is an alternative to that reading, um, which this passage gives us. But, um, uh, but again,
1: I, I agree that uh, her motivations, particularly once she starts getting mentally into the mode of being a Maya again, since she doesn't have Fingal there to, to kind of anchor her to the elvish world, then her her motivations, I think, probably change, and she starts to disconnect. I guess I'm reading a whole lot into it. But well, no, I mean no
0: exactly. No, I, I think that that's, I think that that's warranted, but Dave's about to explode, so I'm not going to say anything else. Dave go ahead.
8: <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm jumping in uninvited because I have I have a it's not an explanation it's more of a question. This time around, when I read this, um, I every every time previously that I've read this, I had that explanation too. I was like, why the heck did she, you know, like kind of screwed him over? But uh, this time, reading it, I interpret it to mean that her the the power that she exercises over Doriath was indeed tied to Thingle. that. In falling in love with him, and then taking on um, her her fleshly form, uh, uh, that that is that her that is how she gained the power that she's able to exercise over over um, um, not Middle Earth but the particular part of Middle Earth. It's almost like um, it's almost like Bombadil. She sort of sets her own bounds, right. but then when Thingle dies, that power is broken. Uh, That's how I read it this time. I read it to mean that her relationship with Thingol was indeed the source of the power that she – not all her power, but specifically the power—the girdle of Melian and the power she exercises over the kingdom of Doriath is tied inextricably to her relationship with him. That's a great thought, Dave. I I guess I hadn't thought about that,
1: but at one point it said that Melian gives Thingol a good share of – lends him her power. Yes. And so I think maybe that's maybe the answer. Once he dies, her power reverts to what it was before in which he doesn't really have the power to extend that girdle anymore. That's an excellent thought.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the two passages I would point out here, um, in, uh, in, in in this, that is the, 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 two bits from this passage that I would point out that support what Dave is saying there is, uh, you know, in that form, she gained a power over the substance of Arda gained, um, if she hadn't assumed that form, if she had not been uh if she had not been incarnated in the flesh in the way she was, she would not have had the power to create the girdle of Melian. And then at the end, um the that, that wonderful image um by which uh Tolkien expresses um with this sort of delightful indirectness the ending of that power. Um and as Galju in the enchanted river, spoke with a different voice, um, something has changed. This is not like, and she has just, you know, she's like taking her ball and going home. But that she is, um, things are, things are, things are different now. And and it it has been broken, Mike.
5: Yeah, that the, the uh, to Dave's point that uh, you know, as long as their partnership was intact, they each gave something to the other. One Thingle dies. It you know it's it seems pretty clear that a large part of Melian's power kind of switches off with a click almost. Yeah. And similarly, when Thingle sort of removes himself with the partnership with Melian, the wisdom he has access to switches off with a click. I mean, we've seen him seated in the throne room next to Melian almost exclusively through the whole book so that proximity and that partnership is emphasized and she's able to convey her wisdom to him but in the end he's 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 uh, described as exclusively sitting you know in the workroom somewhere in the thousand caves just watching the dwarves you know work on the necklace so he's he's abandoned that partnership and so the wisdom he has access to through melian is also disabled
0: yeah yeah no exactly, and and we we've sort of seen him kind of cutting her himself off from her um in his refusal to listen to her um sort of progressively over time, but yeah, you're right, i mean it's it is like a switch is turned off, and um and I think that that's that is how we're supposed to be reading that there at the end. The parallel I was going to make that i um uh that i Stopped myself from uh, before, but, I'll, but which I'll come back to now is her uh, Melian's incarnation into fleshly form as she binds herself to Thingol is rather like the Valar entering into Arda. Remember that when some of the Ainur looking at the vision and seeing, um, you know, seeing A the 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 land that is. Um, out of love they descend into it and they bind themselves to it and they are restricted within it and they gain power over it and um but they but it but it is their love that binds them to it and they become limited i mean we talked about this way back in our first two sessions last year um you know talking about the way in which these you know these phenomenal cosmic powers restrict themselves to you know taking on forms and operating within, um, you know, this little speck of a planet. Well, Melian has done a similar kind of thing. Um, and it has had a similar kind of effect. And so in a sense, you know, the end of Thingol's life is like, in this, in, in this parallel, sort of like the end of Arda, you know, there will come a time when Arda will be done um, and when history will come to an end. And at that point, the Valar are going to be released. Their job will be over and her job is over. Now, again, it's a, it, the parallel is not exact. I mean, I'm not saying that they're the same situations, but I think we can see a similar kind of dynamic um, uh, going on there with that binding through love and that restriction for the duration uh, of that time, but it's not a permanent change um She goes back to who she was and what she was in her previous relationship with it um okay was so it we are uh We are close to running out of time, but I only have one or two other things that I wanted to 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 talk about. One of the last things that I want to talk about is the sons of Feanor um what do you guys make of the the attack of the sons of fanor i mean i would say i mean I, and I think we have some evidence here to say that this is the worst thing the sons of fanor have ever done in the long and uncomfortable list of horrible things that fanor and his sons have done uh, in the name of their oath to pursue the silmarils they have this is this is the worst what is it about this that makes it the worst and i think um I think this is another thing, actually, that I think is more explicit. Uh, the narrator is more explicit about this uh, in the Book of Lost Tales, I think, than than here. But uh, but I think we can still see the same thing. Um, Matt, go ahead.
9: Well, my first comment is just it's just like it's just all so much too little, too late. If they really wanted to get the Silmarils back, they wait to this eleventh hour in this last desperate attempt to get the Silmaril, and it's all just kind of uh it just it seems more than pointless at this point.
6: Yeah,
0: yeah. Well and you know, I I have to say, my favorite line from the Book of Lost Tales version um is actually Dior. Um when the Sons of Fanor send their demand to Dior that he give them the silmaril. Dior says to them he's like, "Uh, you know what? Morgoth still has two of them. Why don't you all go up there and get them? You know, you're so keen on a silmaril. They're right over there. You get two. I, I, I've only got one. He's got two. Go for it, guys. Knock yourselves out." Um, I it's, it's a it's a, it's a phenomenal line <laughs> that Dior gets. Uh, obviously, I am paraphrasing it. Um, but um uh but but yeah, I mean, you're it's the the sort of the pointlessness of it. Um is uh, is is really sad, but Dave, go ahead.
8: Well, um, in particular, uh, I was going to focus on specifically his kids, um, whose names escape me at this moment. Uh, I feel like that that was called to particular attention because they they specifically say the cruel servants of who? Which one was it? Was it Carinthia? Was it his cruel cruel servants? Who basically Caledron. took uh, Dior's kids out, threw them in the woods, and let them starve? Yeah, it was kind. I mean, I, I feel like that—that's. I mean, that's just. Com- you know, it's it's one thing to to slaughter innocent people. Uh, it's another thing to to ensure that they die in a horrendous way that that involves much like. I mean, that that's a pretty proactive thing. They they could have just like even cut the kids down when they found them. Instead, they grabbed them and then got on their horses, rode out into the middle of the woods and dumped them. But uh, but just getting back into the language, they, this is one of the few times when I feel like we see an elf described in such a horrendously negative way, the mm-hmm. cruel servants.
7: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, no, I mean, Kelegorm is, Keligorm obviously comes off worst here. Kelligorm is the one who stirs up his brothers to it, to assault Doriath. And then he is the one where his servants are the ones, um, who, uh, who abandons little Elured and Elurine, um, in the, in the woods. Um, yeah, I, Laura, go ahead. You wanted to add something here?
4: Yeah, I just uh, wanted to say that this seems to be going um, above and beyond the oath. Even, you know, killing innocent children. You know, what's what's really the point of that, other than yeah. just cruelty?
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. I mean, I do think and I would say in sort of res, in in response Dave to what you were saying there, um I would follow exactly what what Laura said. Um you know, why is it that the 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 death of those children is really singled out because I think the reason there's so much emphasis on that is it does serve as sort of the the, the illustration almost the symbol of what this whole thing is of of what they're doing there, it is completely pointless. And and Laura's right; it's completely irrelevant to the oath. You know, the oath was that we will, you know, we will they, they will pursue with hatred anyone who keeps a Silmaril from them. So okay, yes, fighting Dior is in line with the terms of the oath. I mean, the terms of the oath are horrible, but at least it's in line with it. His little his little boys are not doing them any; they're not keeping them. They're not standing in the way. They're standing between them and the Silmarils. Mike, go ahead.
8: It's kind of—I mean, when you think about it, when you put it into perspective of just elves in general, it's really an absurd exception. I mean, we we see elves who are haughty, we see elves who are proud, we see elves who are wrathful. Um, we see elves who become fey in their anger or their lust for revenge. Uh, this is—I mean, th- these guys are like these guys are like the. They've hit rock bottom for elves. Yeah. They've sunk into cruelty. Yeah. I mean, they're just, they're not even, you know, like just about every other sort of example of bad elf behavior that we've seen, it, it's its its not excusable or even necessarily relatable. But even like the Tulare, you know, that was, you could kind of, you're like, well, they got into a dispute, and then probably a couple guys got into a scuffle, and then the whole thing erupted. But these are like these guys are like the. Um, I mean, this is this is sort of a. This is like one of the greatest works of um, Morgoth, and and actually, I would like to point that out. That what's fascinating um, about this chapter is it starts out talking about Morgoth and how the the children of Hurin are dead. And then they go out of their way to say, but, you know, but Morgoth wasn't done. He was still going to try and re- sow destruction. Right. And, and that his, you know, his his um, 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 grudge against the, the, the descendants of Hador was not satiated. And then he lets Hurin go. And then we never hear about Morgoth again. And all we see are just the consequences of, uh, I, I feel like we should be tying this back to Morgoth. That this is one of the truly awful things that Morgoth has Accomplished in all of his conniving, that he has um, set circumstances up such that you have elves committing acts of blatant cruelty, where it yeah. just doesn't even serve any purpose. They're just, I mean, they, they've become Morgoth, right? Like, I mean, this is the sort of thing that he would have his servants do. And now the elves are doing it themselves, to themselves.
0: <laughs> yeah, i I, th- I think about... Uh, Frodo's comment uh in bag end at the end of the at the end of the the return of the king you know this is mordor um you know that <clears throat> it's it's the way that that becomes internalized and you've got someone like Saruman who was who was good and was perverted um by Sauron and was doing his yeah. work and everything and you've got the, the Fëanor and his sons in a similar kind of camp there
8: Exactly. I mean, it's it's really. I mean, it's kind of bizarre because the chapter starts talking by talking about Morgoth, and then we never hear about him ever again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just the rest of the chapter is people doing his work for him. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not even people who it's people who ostensibly are his enemies.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Mike, you had wanted to say something before. I think.
5: Say you know, Tolkien writing in this mode, we, we're not allowed to. See the psychological motivations behind characters, but I, my guess is that Kelligorm at this point hates himself, hates his father, hates the oath. is just a twisted uh, entity at this point, and we don't get to know really psychologically what's where he is at this point in the story. But all, in the, writing in this mode, that's not appropriate. But what we get are his actions and the consequences uh, or how he behaves. So. It, that's got to be part of what's happened at this point.
0: Yeah. No. That's actually would be uh would be an interesting compare the, the comparison what you've suggested there sort of uh, that would be an interesting paper topic. Uh, Kelagorm and Gollum, compare and contrast, um, discuss. Um, yeah. I think that's that's yeah. As you say, we 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 do have to be careful not to be kind of filling in too much of the the sort of the internal backstory ourselves, but. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we've seen enough from Kelligorm in particular, especially in the Baron and Luthian story. Um, and remember we also meet him in, um, in the, uh, in the story. He's the one who meets Aeol, um, during the Maeglin story. Uh, you know, he was the, the former master of Huon. I mean, really Kelegorm is one of the guys we've gotten to know best. So, so I think that that's, yeah, it is, it is certainly kind of tempting. Um, Matt, go ahead.
9: Uh, yeah, that kind of set up my comment nicely there about, you know, parts of, of the Silmarillion are more fleshed out than others. And this is a really spare section. These three paragraphs could easily be an entire novel.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yeah. No, I agree. I mean, it's and this this is sort of like the, you know, that that spareness of the Silmarillion, which is so characteristic of this whole book Um in in I agree in a, in in a pretty extreme form. Um, by the way, the the reference that I mentioned before, the way in which the uh, narrator of the Lost Tales version is more explicit than uh, the narrator finally in the Silmarillion. What he points to is premeditation as the primary difference. That this is the first premeditated slaying of elf by elf. Um, that just, Dave just just like the terms that you were suggesting before, uh, the kin slaying was was bad, but that was like second degree murder. You know, they didn't go in there planning to kill them here. They are, they are planning and premeditating. We're going to go in and we're going to kill, uh, you know, our fellow elves. That's never happened before. We haven't seen anybody do that. Um, so yeah, I think that's, 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 that's clearly a big deal. And, and as we've been saying, the, the abandonment of the kids is, uh, sort of the worst, uh, the worst illustration of that. Um, well, not that we talked about everything in this chapter, but I think we've 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 gone through a lot of it. We did not, of course, talk about uh, the uh, the intervention of Treebeard and the Ents. Um, that's uh... I, I say Treebeard, he's not mentioned by name, of course, but given the fact that Treebeard talks about his fond memories of Beleriand and his time in Ossiriand, which is where that fight happens, I think it is, it is to me, utterly inconceivable that Treebeard was not there uh, fighting with Baron against the dwarves there. Um, but I think that it's perfectly um I th- I th- I think that it's perfectly uh uh acceptable that we didn't say much about them because what I said just now was more than we got about them in the chapter, speaking of the spareness that you were talking about, Matt. Um Matt, go ahead. Do you think this is one of the uh
8: memories that he's recalling fondly?
0: No, no, I don't. No, I don't, but I do think... uh, I remember the good old days when we slaughtered dwarves
8: up in the hills.
6: Yeah, those were the good old days. I
0: do think that it's what he's thinking, though, when Gimli bows and his axe falls out of his belt and he says, a dwarf and an axe wielder. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's totally what he's thinking about there. (laughs) But, Matt, go ahead.
9: Yeah, this this is just one other quick comment. I mean, there's, there's very few happy endings in this book, one of which is Baron and Luthien granted some more time together, but it just kind of killed it for me when I read that it's where they dwell is referred to as the land of the dead that live.
7: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. The land of the dead, that though that, that means that doesn't have to mean like the land of the zombies, right? It means like the land of the resurrected people, the land of resurrection. Um, but it certainly does seem to point to the kind of etherealness the kind of numinousness of this clearly nobody really knows what to do with them uh and uh that is nobody really knows how to relate to them baron and luthien are kind of operating on a different level at this point um and and that seems pretty clear to everybody around them it seems <clears throat> but um but yeah i think that Therefore, the arrival of the Silmaril and the Naoglamir here, you know, Luthien wearing the Naoglamir with the Silmaril is the greatest vision of of loveliness ever. I mean, she was already the most beautiful of the children of Iluvatar, and now you've got the most beautiful of the children of Iluvatar adorned by the greatest work of the the greatest and most beautiful craftsmanship of both the dwarves and the elves combined. Um, this is, uh, this is sort of, you know, then this, the, the quintessential, the quintessential beauty, which, which hallows the land and makes it, makes it a mystery. I mean, it makes normal mortals and even normal elves, um, sort of uncomfortable about it and shunning it. And I think, uh, you know, especially thinking as much as we did about Tol Morrowind and the Grave of the Hapless, I think it's interesting and significant that we don't know exactly where Baron and Luthien's tomb is. And so perhaps one of the really interesting and significant grave sites that we get here in the Silmarillion is the lack of a grave site of Baron and Luthien. Um, And the fact that they just kind of disappear in this way. Um is uh, is I think the fitting end to Baron and Luthien. They don't have a memorial other than this mysterious land, this sort of fairyland within fairyland, um, this land of wonder, uh, and uh, and mystery, you know, which 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 grows grows around them because they live there. Um, is that's the monument and the memory of that is the monument. Um, yeah. Okay, well, I should let everybody go. We are over time, um, but uh, thanks everybody for uh, for another fun discussion. We are almost done with A Silmarillion. Um We've got uh, Two War and the Fall of Gondolin next week, and then <clears throat> off to Erendil and the War of Wrath. Um, so uh, we're 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 really getting there. Uh, thanks everybody. Thanks for listening,
3: and Godspeed.